Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the One Life Podcast. We're your hosts, Chris and Jenny Graby. Our mission at One Life is to inspire you to take risks, dream big, and to live your life on purpose. We want to say a huge thank you to our sponsor this month, Strange Bird Media. Strange Bird is a Nashville-based full-service production company providing video, photography, graphic, and web design. They pretty much do it all. As creative content developers, they work with agencies, brands, and artists to produce high-end media solutions with a fresh touch and a unique style. Check out their website at strangebirdmedia.com. On today's show, we chat with none other than Matt Saman. He's an author, he's a coach, he's a dad, and he played at Baylor. Huge Baylor basketball Majorly star. Majorly huge. Major. Yeah, you maybe had his poster on your wall. When he was, <laughs> okay, maybe not, but man. He's a great guy. He's such a great guy. Yes, we really enjoyed our time with Matt. At the age of nine, mm-hmm. he fell in love with the game of basketball. And at the age of 12, he wrote down three dreams, and they all came true. Crazy. Which is amazing. Yeah. To be that. Who does that? I mean, that goal-oriented at the age of nine. I mean, I that's incredible. I was like, goal, get a cookie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so as a Baylor basketball star, everything was going according to Matt's plan when the unexpected happened and changed everything. Everything since I was nine was lining up just exactly the way we wanted. And then I can remember that Friday, I got a call from one of my professors and he said, Matt, what's going on with your team? And I said, what are those knuckleheads doing now? Because I played with some knuckleheads. And he said, no, Matt, you need to turn on the TV right now. They say that there's a homicide and that Baylor basketball players could be involved. And sure enough, I went around and I turned on the TV and I watched this story unfold. And that kind of led into the next two months, which were the longest two months of my life. Guys, today's episode, yeah, it's going to be sports related. So we hope for the fellas out there, you enjoy it. But there is so much good stuff to this. The stories, the ups and downs, the failure, the yeah. getting back up. We really hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. And Matt, welcome to One Life. Thank you guys for having me. Man, we're really excited. I heard a little bit about your story from a good friend of mine, Aaron Bennett, and I thought, man, he would be perfect to have on the podcast. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about you. Who are you? Are you married? you have family, kids, that whole thing? Yep. I, I am married to the beautiful Miss Jana. Uh, we've been married for almost five and a half years now. Nice. We have two kids, uh, Landon and Cade, uh, and they're just unbelievable just to have a great relationship. I'm the head boys basketball coach at Grapevine Faith Christian School. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is my fifth year here. So a lot's happened in the last five or six years. Yes. Um, yeah. So Nice. Well, we're really excited to kind of jump into your story. You've written an incredible book called The Leftovers. You were a Baylor basketball star. Lots going on in your world. Let's back up a little bit before we jump into the book and tell us kind of the story behind how you came to do basketball as a career. Did you always know that you wanted to do that growing up and kind of leading up to how you became a basketball player at Baylor? So when I was nine, uh, I fell in love with the game. And I wrote down three goals. I had had an individual skills coach that kind of guided me through that process. Um, He told me that that I had to write them down for them to become real. And so I I wanted to make my freshman A team, varsity as a sophomore, and get a Division I scholarship. And I was very specific with each of them and also they're in an order that I could achieve them. Instead of just three big goals that you don't know how they're going to happen step by step to get to the last one. And I worked really hard up to that point, And I was very different from my friends and as far as how I spent my time. Well, 
kind of fast forward. I, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and so a small town up there, and it was a football town. And I think my parents and I kind of saw, you know, we had some good players come out, but just not go very far. And one of our family friends moved down to the colony, Texas, and invited me to come down to a basketball camp. And I met a guy named Tommy Thomas at that camp, who is the head coach at the Colony High School. And I, he asked me what my goals were, and I, I told him one, two, three. And he looked down at me and he said, Matt, that can happen for you here in Texas. He, this wasn't a smart recruiting move by him because I was about five, three with huge feet and very unathletic. I, it wasn't like a, you know, this big recruit that he's bringing down here. It was kind of a gamble, I think. And I went back home. And on the way home from the airport, I told my mom and dad that I need to live in Texas to realize my dreams. And they moved me down here a few weeks after that, and they came down. Wow. And so my parents, yeah, when, you know, the big thing for me was it wasn't a, I put pressure on myself to achieve those goals, but I also knew that my family was all in. We don't have any other family down here. They moved for me, a 14-year-old, to realize his dream. That's and I've awesome. always appreciated that. But I, I made the freshman A team. I made varsity as a sophomore. And then going into my senior year, I signed with Baylor. And so my three goals kind of went right in a row the way we had planned it. And, you know, through all of that, I started to believe that if I lived the right way, then God would just support me in whatever. My life would go exactly as planned. Mm-hmm. And that basically what I wanted was what he wanted. And I started to think that way. Can I? I want to. I want to yeah. ask a question about your parents. I want to get into the to your Baylor story and all that happened here. But sure. I just got to be honest. Like I've never heard a move like that. So give me a little bit of perspective because I know we have a lot of people that listen who are parents and maybe have a kid that they see talent or have a gift. And what drove them to do that? Do you have other siblings that moved along with you? Just give give us the whole story behind some of that because I'm really intrigued about your parents. You know, ever since I, I I wrote those goals down, they were really, especially my mom, she was a driving force behind it. Uh, read me mental toughness books in junior high because I wouldn't oh, read them wow. myself. Um, <laughs> you know, my dad drove me everywhere that I needed to go for skill work and things. So they were invested. And I think the biggest thing and I try to tell my players this now is, you know, your parents will do a lot for you when they can tell you're serious about it. If this was something that I, I picked up from season to season or uh, now there's a new video game out, I'd rather do that, there's no way we'd be down here. But mm-hmm. because they saw that I sacrificed so much, and it's a testament to them, they really did everything they could to help me get to the, my dreams, my goals. The biggest thing was I have a younger sister. She's three years younger than me, and I don't know if she ever realized how she could have changed the whole story just by saying no. Because that was the big thing is my parents said, if Becky will say yes and go and want to go, then we'll do it. And they asked her and without hesitation, she said, yeah, let's go. Like, that's crazy because she, I mean, she had a lot of good friends and we had both grown up in this place. Yeah. Yeah. But with her on board, we just put all of our hopes in basketball. Okay. So take us to Baylor. So you go to Baylor and and kind of tell us that journey and the story and heart behind your book, The Leftovers. Okay. So Coach Bliss had just come to Baylor the year before me, and he was known for turning programs around. And so when I met with him on our recruiting trip, he told me, he said, Matt, I want you to be the foundation of our program. And as an 18-year-old, I'm like, (laughs) 
Uh, basically, if he would have had a piece of paper right there, I said, give me a pen, yeah. you know, and, but on the way back from that meeting, I told my mom, I was like, that's where I want to go. She had tears in her eyes and said, I agree. And, you know, we kind of put all of our trust in Coach Bliss at that point. Freshman year, I, I played every game. Playing time was up and down, but we had a really good senior group and we made it to the NIT. And I thought, man, how cool is this? I'm living my dream. Well, you know, we've already been to the NIT. March Madness is surely not far behind. Well, the next year we were really young and we had a couple of good freshmen come in, but our record wasn't great. But there's a lot of hope in what we were doing. And my junior year, it was one of those seasons where you look at their record. It doesn't really show the true story of how competitive they were. And, and we were right there at the top. The, the great thing was, is we were going into my senior year with me and a few other role players that were solid and a couple of juniors that were future NBA studs two of them that actually did play. And with that mix, you're really looking at something special. And we were picked to be in the top uh, of the Big 12 or top four, which means, man, like this year, six or seven Big 12 teams made the tournament. So you've got a chance. Mm -hmm. And ever since I was young, I had those goals, but I, I was a Duke fan growing up. And I remember Christian Leitner hitting that turnaround shot. And I practiced that myself and dreamed of being in that position. And, and I thought, man, how cool is it? And, you know, as a 21-year-old going into my that summer before my senior year, everything since I was nine was lining up just exactly the way we wanted. Uh, and then I can remember that Friday, I got a call from one of my professors that I was friends with. And he said, Matt, what's going on with your team? And I said, what are those knuckleheads doing now? Because I played with some knuckleheads. <laughs> and he said, no. They're 20-year-olds, 19 yeah. and 20-year-olds. Yeah. Yeah. Usually. That's sure. Exactly. And he said, no, Matt, you need to turn on the TV right now. They say that there's a homicide and that Baylor basketball players could be involved. And sure enough, I went around and I turned on the TV and I watched this story unfold. And that kind of led into the next two months, which were the longest two months of my life. Wow, that is insane. So, okay. <laughs> Unpack that story a little bit more yeah, for us. So absolutely. You, you turned on the TV and what was happening? Well, sure. You, you, see, you see on the news that one of our teammates, Patrick, was missing. You know, the funny thing is you kind of look back at it now and Patrick Dennehy was a red shirt, um, but he had so much talent. Like people were talking about him being a pro one day, but a red shirt basically is they're there, but they're not there. They come to practice sometimes. He was kind of in and out the whole year. So for him to not be around that much wasn't strange to us. So we hadn't seen him in a week or two. But that Wednesday before the Friday I got the call from the professor, a couple of policemen showed up after our weight workout with Coach Bliss. And they said, hey, we're just looking for Patrick. His parents haven't heard from him. Uh, has any of you heard from him? And we laughed it off and just said, no, nah, no, we haven't heard from him. But that was Patrick. Never once thought that there was something actually wrong. And maybe that's a little bit of being a naive 21-year-old. There's policemen here, but there's nothing really wrong. Like, you know, that right. we just we didn't think twice about it. So I found out that one of my teammates uh, that I had really played with my junior year uh, sat by and was really close to um, had shot and killed Patrick. And it was strange because they were roommates for a long time and from my perspective were good friends. After that happened... People started to dig into our program, and they started to see that Coach Bliss had been doing a lot of things wrong right in front of me. And that was during the summer, I think. Not only did I start to pick up some bad personal habits, I also lost some innocence that summer. 
I'd always trusted my coaches. I never thought that they would lie or, or do anything deceitful towards us. And But man, uh, when you're seeing the things going on, that they're right in front of you, but you didn't realize, you feel a little bit dumb. And every day I felt like I went into the gas station and there's a new article, more information coming up. You know, when people would see me on the campus I loved being on, they would look at me differently. I was all of a sudden, I was one of those basketball players. You know, there's a interview that I always remember watching that a student talking about, you got to watch out for those basketball players. And it always, it always hurt me because they're talking about me, but I didn't do anything. Coach Bliss resigned. Before the worst about him came out, he resigned. At the time, I felt really bad for him. And I remember I saw him one at one moment before he resigned down in, in the basement of the gym by his office. And I hadn't seen him in a while. And I just thought he looked older than a month ago. You know, he just really yeah. a lot was going on with him. And I, I stopped and I said, hey, coach, I just want you to let you know that I'm sorry for everything that you're going through. And that what people are saying because I don't, you don't deserve that. You know, I was such a follower, so loyal. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, man, I appreciate that. Come back here with me. And so we went into his office, and uh, I'd seen him speak in front of thousands of people. And he was so sure of himself, but there's something was off. He wouldn't look me in the eye. He was all over the place. And he said, you know, they went into Patrick's house, and they found these drugs, and they found all this stuff, and that's how he was paying for school. And as a coachable follower, I said, yes, sir, that's it. That's what happened. If you kind of fast forward a month and a half later, one of his assistants had uh, recorded a conversation in in an office with him and some other players, not me, but it was him telling them that lie, but as a truth. Mm -hmm. And I read that in a newspaper and that was probably the moment that I kind of said, this is just, this is too much. We didn't know if we'd have a team. We were already told that we weren't going to be able to play in postseason. So my senior year, it's like showing up for work and not getting paid and knowing you're not going to get paid. Like nobody's going to do that. Yeah. Wow. So that is a crazy story. And I remember it on national news and it was such a huge deal. And I guess for the timing, this happened before your season started, right? Yeah, during the summer. So your coach is gone. You're walking into what's supposed to be your dream season. And you now have the weight of the world on your shoulders and going, okay, what do we do? How do we salvage this? Explain to me what that looks like and what that season looked like. Yeah, I lost 10 teammates that summer. Wow. Like there's, There's always turnover from year to year, two or three guys, but not 10. And it was the main 10. You know, uh, so I looked around. I can remember driving from Dallas back to Waco one day during the summer and a buddy called me and said, hey, you got a new coach. I said, oh, wow. Who would take this job? It's you. Said, You're the coach. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah surprise. Um, and he said, it's it's a guy named Scott Drew. And, and I said, oh, man, I've never even heard of him. I don't I don't know who that is. And so we walk into our first meeting with Coach Drew and his staff, all new guys. And I'm just looking around. And when the term leftover started to kind of come up as far as what we should call the book, it's perfect. Because I'm looking around. These are just a bunch of misfit leftovers that it's me, two other seniors. But we were really role players, not stars. I was really a sixth man kind of behind the scenes guy. So I didn't have to do a lot of interviews. I really loved that role. All of a sudden, I'm the only four-year guy, and I was the only guy that they really trusted to be out in front of the media and not say something wrong. And so all of a sudden, I'm the spokesperson 
for this group of misfits. Coach Drew walked in. He was 32 years old. I'm 36 now. He was 32 years old taking over this program. And he came in with so much energy. And I remember him saying, guys, guys, I'm just so excited. There's so much hope in the future and what we're going to do. And it was one of the first times I ever felt immediate anger towards a coach and mistrust. And like I didn't buy it. And I remember sitting there thinking, man, you're insane. And this is going to be miserable. I don't think you understand how tough the Big 12 is. Like I'm an authority, you know, and, and, and you don't know what we're about to go through. Season was difficult. Coach Drew wanted to do everything different than I had done the last three years. In basketball standards, as a senior, I was an old dog. I didn't want new tricks, right? I, I, I liked getting yelled at by Coach Bliss. I liked the fact that he used profanity. I liked that. Like, it was just amazing how Coach Drew was doing everything right, and I hated it. Mm. And it was kind of more on the inside. On the outside, I tried to show that I was on, on board and I was a leader, uh, but I knew – I knew, and looking back, I really see it was, it was half effort. It was a shell. We start losing to a bunch of teams that we used to beat really bad. And I can remember Coach Drew just looking down at me, and not just at me, but as our group, and saying, you better play hard, and threw us back in. When we came in, I mean, I'd almost played 100 games at that point for Baylor. I heard something i never heard before, which was boos. Our fans were booing the fact that the walk-ons were coming out, booing the fact that we were coming back on the floor. Mm. In my mental state at that time, I really wanted to let them know how I felt. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. Uh, but I felt like that. And that night, I crying after the game, broken down, really thought of quitting at that point. And I don't think a lot of people would have judged me for quitting because everybody knew how difficult this had been. I had an assistant coach that said, just show up the next day. And I did that. Now, unfortunately, the next day we were running sprints. <laughs> sure, and, you did. Yeah. 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 And and like I used to pride myself in not being the fastest guy naturally, but winning sprints. Because at some point, it's all about can I go faster and harder than that guy? Can I go longer than he's willing to go? And I would do that. But now I'm last, and not just last, but I'm missing the times and making my team run more. And a freshman walk on yelled one time, "You're supposed to be a leader." And he didn't realize at the time that he was really drawing a line in the sand for me. I had to either quit because this was doing nothing for my team or get on board and try to salvage this in some way. If there's anything right I did that year, it was not quitting and getting on board. So this story is insane. And it's so crazy to see how this dream that you had was completely kind of derailed. And you're in this place where you're exposed and wide open. And I imagine a lot of this is in the book. But take us through this moment where you have a freshman yelling at you on the court going, you're supposed to be a leader. You don't quit. What happens? What do you do next? And how does this all play out? So basketball was going really wrong, and my answer was to live poorly. Those were the two tracks I was on, basketball bad, living poorly. Turner calls me out, and it's funny, uh, Terrence, Terrence Thomas is the hero of the story. He was another senior with me. He hadn't been there. He'd only been there for a year, but his junior year, he was miserable, about to quit, and in the doghouse with Coach Bliss, where I'm like, you know, living the dream. And then we kind of flipped where when all this stuff happened, it's a great example of approach, the approach that you take, the attitude that you choose to bring to something. 
because I chose to think this is the worst thing in the world. There's no way anything good can happen. Terrence chose to think, I'm going to make this the best situation I can possible. And he is a better person today because of everything that happened. Mm -hmm. So Terrence yells at Turner and tells him to shut up because I think Terrence knew who I used to be and knew how much I was struggling. I had some physical things that year too. I was a little heavier than I'd ever been before. Uh, my neck was bad, so I was on some painkillers most games in Red Bull. That was kind of my pregame warm-up. So, <laughs> yeah, real, real yeah. good, real good. You know, yeah, yeah it's, it's the high-level sports aren't as glamorous as you think, but you, you just got to play. And so I went to the locker room and I watched film, which I hadn't done a lot that year. And I'm really seeing for the first time how much I'm faking it on the floor and how disrespectful I'm being to my coaches, to my teammates, to really everything that I thought I stood for as a player. And I, yeah, it's just kind of that decision where you either quit or you get on board. I was in the gray and the gray wasn't doing anything for anybody. So I made that choice and the change was pretty quick. Uh, we played Purdue, who was ranked 22nd in the country, and they had beaten Duke earlier in the year. Ooh, <laughs> Purdue. Man, not a fan. I'm not a fan either. Yeah. And, uh, so we took on this identity as a team of every night is our championship because we don't have one. Every night we're going to try to go in and do something that nobody thinks we can do. Uh, we weren't supposed to win a game all year long. And we ended up where we just basically go around and we get blown out a couple times. But we do some things against Kansas, Oklahoma State, who is sixth in the country. Because that's the thing in the Big 12. You're going against Hall of Fame coaches and All-Americans every night. And then I'm looking at us and we're like, we shouldn't even be competitive with these guys. Yeah. But at Kansas, we're down four with 10 minutes left. You know, we beat AM twice. Like the AM coach got fired the day after we beat him the second time. Because apparently losing to us twice is the worst thing you can do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and I did, I did start to get on board more with the coaching staff and appreciate what they were trying to do with us. But here's the part that I hadn't seen coming was my off court life still continued. Mm -hmm. So even as basketball started to get right again, I didn't stop those habits that were destructive. I can remember a Bible study that our assistant coach, the tough thing is they wanted to always have them at my apartment. And so I had to do damage control like every day, you know, before that would happen. Yeah. And and and, I, and there's a lot of guilt with that in the past. I'm over it now, but in the yeah. past and they'd come in and I remember Coach Mills saying, don't think that you can live the way you want right now. Do the things you want right now. And then when you get out and he used kind of quote in the real world, things will get easier. Temptations will just go away. You can get right with God again. Don't think that that's how it works. Mm -hmm. And I remember being so cocky and out of it at that point that I thought in my head, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to live the life right now. And then when this, when this is over, which I was ready for it to be over, then I'll get back to being the person I was and living the way that I was. Well, you know, you kind of fast forward nine years. I mean, I went to play in Iceland the year after Baylor and my first practice, they asked me where I played, and I said Baylor. And then I see this kind of look where they do the math, and and or they heard something, and they say, "Don't don't they shoot guys there?" So even across the world, like wow. my yeah. my past kind of fought, my story followed me, but so did my habits. Mm -hmm. Where I got fired from Iceland, not because I wasn't a good player, but because of my habits off the floor. Mm -hmm. 
So what was the turning point for you, Matt, in your faith where everything changed? Was it a moment? Was it a season? Did you have an encounter? What was kind of the, the change? So I had started coaching and, and teaching in high school at McKinney. I was at McKinney High for five years, but very a very angry coach. I, I do wish I could go back and change some things there, but I was just still living in this uh, angered state, resentment, a lot of me monster, poor me of why my life is in this place, not thinking for once it's because of maybe the habits that I still have at that point. Um, for some reason, for some reason, I decided to go to a church down the road from where I lived. It wasn't a church that I'd gone to much. Uh, in January, January 6th of 2012, I was alone. It was my birthday, 30th birthday. I'm alone in my apartment with a six pack. Wow, and and I'm I'm thinking, you know what? This is pretty low. Of all the things I've done, all the relationships I've broken, to be here in this moment with really nobody that I could celebrate with or want to even spend time with, because I'm where I am. This is it. <laughs> this that was my low. And um, the next Tuesday, uh, I went and this lady that had helped me get an, uh, an appointment opened the door for me, sat with me for a little while, talked with me. She's very kind. And then I went in and talked with this pastor. We had a long talk, and I really, kind of like what I've done with you, I told them my story, and I, I let them know my frustrations, and I said, I don't understand why I'm 30, and I'm sitting here, and I feel so lost, and I have so much anger still about what happened. And the main message was that I have to give up control of my life. And I was kind of like, I've heard that before. Like, I felt like I did that when I was five. Yeah. You know, I know that. He's like, no, you, you don't. You haven't given Christ everything and laid it all down. And what I really saw, too, was when I was 21, I took control of my life. And I didn't realize how destructive that would be. By taking control of my life, I actually lost it. And mm -hmm. I just went on this downward spiral. And I think a lot of times we think, if I give up control to God, then I won't get to do what I want, live my life and things like that. Well, I can see plainly now by doing that, you actually get your life back. And he opens up these possibilities that you never saw were there. So I went in there that day to the church to get answers and, and really let off a lot of steam and frustration. But God's plan is always bigger than ours, right? right. And that lady that helped me get my interview and opened the door and sat with me, uh, we've been married for five years. Oh. And so, yeah. Yeah, I always feel a choked up when Plot I Plot twist. Yeah, awesome. but, but like, but Aww. I just went in there wanting to talk to a pastor, yeah. and that's it. And she really has encouraged me through times where I, I start to maybe stress or doubt. And that next year, the change was I never drank again. The, the change was pretty huge. And now I'm at Faith, and I get to coach and teach at a Christian school and share with you guys. Uh, the cool thing, too, is how the, the, you know, the story kind of comes full circle. Back then, I could have been a, a light. You know, I could have been salt and light for a lot of people back then because of what we were going through and, and used that platform, and I shied away. Well, thankfully, we get second chances, mm -hmm. and I get to do that now later on. Dude, thank you so much for sharing that story. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things when I hear the story is it makes me think about you took two paths, and I know it can be perceived as like you took control of your life at the age of 21, but I think you were in control in the first stage, your plan, discipline, mm, focus, no being good. Yep. And a lot of people out there and go like, well, at least I didn't do the drinking hard path, but then you also did 
this kind of living your life your own way where neither one of those were fully submitted to the will and love of Jesus. And I think in right. both of those, and you didn't really find true peace until you gave your life to Christ. Yeah, I think you're right on the money. You know, I've been reading this book by John Bevere, Good or God, and he talks about being wary of things in our life that are good, but that aren't God. Basketball, there's nothing wrong with it. It's good. It's a good sport. It brings people together. I love playing it, still love shooting. But basketball was completely in control of my life. Mm-hmm. There's no question. Mm-hmm. And from a young age, that was in charge of my heart and my decision making. And I see that now. So probably what what I, I try to talk with my players now is, yeah, we love to work and we're going to get better today. But man, there's more to this. Yeah. There's more than what we're doing right now. That's and I, I, yeah. So what's your big? What's your final hope that people get out of the book? Well, one, I think that it's never too late. You can never be too far away. And never screw up too much. Never doubt enough. You can always give it up and start over. Like, that's what I feel like is I've started over. Mm -hmm. uh, Where, yeah, I know that was me those nine years, but it's like there's a bridge, you know, where at some point I talk about those things, but it doesn't even feel like it was me doing them and just hopefully help other people learn from them. That's awesome. Thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing your story. It's so inspiring, and I hope people are inspired as they listen because we, we all have times where we need a fresh start. Right. You know, that's what I hear you saying, You know that God is the God of second chances, which he absolutely is. So, Matt, we are going to close out the show like we always do, and we ask three questions of our guests. Are you ready? Awesome. Okay. I'm ready. I'm <laughs> all ready. right. What is a book that's changed your life? What's a habit that's changed your life? And what advice would you give to the younger you? Okay, well, it'd be uh, The Walk-On, Life at the End of the Bench by Alan Williams. And it's actually the book I read before I ever started writing The Leftovers. It really encouraged me. What he does is he shares his experience at Wake Forest as a walk-on. And I really saw a lot of parallels with my story, and it encouraged me to share mine, too. So that, that was a powerful one. That's awesome. Um, What's the second thing? Habit that's What's a habit that's changed habit. your life? Yeah. So in the last year or so, I've really been into researching the personal habits by very successful people. And now nice. the, one of the things that comes around a lot is making your bed in the morning. <laughs> it sounds simple, but I start off by making my bed and I check something off. And for the rest of the day, my mind is in a mode of finished tasks and get things done. Um, and I encourage my guys today, ask them if they made their bed this morning. Um, it sounds simple, but I love it. That's so awesome. Um, yeah, we've had actually a lot of people surprisingly say that yeah. as their habit. <laughs> yeah. And the last one is, what advice would you give to the younger Matt? Uh, not to let failure define you, but let it refine you. I think that's a big difference. I, I failed in a lot of ways early on, and I let that kind of become my story. Instead of, like Terrence, seeing the success and failures and trying to find out what good can come of it, how can I become the best version of myself in that situation? So good, man. Well, we know that tons of people are going to want to pick up this book and hear more about your story, hear kind of the in-depth details of the struggle and then you guys coming out on the other side. And so where can people find you? For so where can people get the book? How can they know more about Matt? I love social media, so I am all over it. Uh, <laughs> in, Instagram and Twitter, at TL Salmon. 
Casey Ellis for the Leftovers on Facebook as well. Um, they can find the book on Amazon. That's probably the easiest way. And at the Gateway Bookstores for those people that are in the DFW area and attend there. there. Awesome. That is so great, man. Well, thank you again for sharing your story, man. Can't wait to uh, high-five you when you run into each other here in town. Thanks, Matt. Well, appreciate thank you, bro. Thank you, guys. Thanks for your time. I literally ran into Matt the other day. <laughs> gave him a high five and he is so excited and so thankful he got to share his story and we're so thankful to hear his story today we hope that it's impacted you as much as it has impacted us yeah guys thank you so much again for listening if this episode was a blessing to you we'd love it if you take a minute subscribe rate and review the podcast and share it with someone in your life who needs a little courage yeah hey and all for all those baylor fans out there send this over to them because i know people know the story and would love to hear the backstory behind it. And as always, you can find all of the info for today's episode on our show notes over at our website, onelife.works. Yep. We got some great shows coming up. We've got oh, John Eldridge. What? what? That's going to be awesome. We've got Heather McFadden. McFad- McFadden. McFadden. She likes to sit. She <laughs> yeah. corrected us on how to she, say it. She said we did good. Yes. We tried. <laughs> we did it. Heather McFadden. She's incredible. Yeah. We've got, who else have we got? Uh, oh, should we say? Yeah. <laughs> We're going to leave that one as a big secret and surprise <laughs> for you guys, and you'll be excited when it happens. Absolutely. So, well, guys, we're going to close it out like we do every single time, and we know you're saying it loud and proud with us. Let's say it together. Remember, you only get one life. Live, Live it, it well. well.